This is WMUA Amherst, and you are listening to... Barbarian in the Valley. Your noon to two spot here on WMUA Amherst every Sunday. We're on the mountaintop. We're looking across the basin. Two hours ahead of us. We don't want to get too complacent. Our first hour, of course, starts with a theme. Because why not? And to this week's theme will be get a job. That's right, get a job. So we'll be strolling down or falling down or rolling down into the valley, into that incoherent space between the only thing that makes sense, which is the mountaintop, people. The mountaintop. Not the greedy valley. Not those verdant fields. Not that sweet Connecticut River. But the mountaintop. It's the only place you'll ever find safety. And then, of course, in our second hour, we have talk, discussion. We return to the mountaintop to that clear view. So hang on, because we're going down, because to get to one mountaintop to another requires this journey. And you are with me, and we are together. I am the barbarian in question, and you are my barbarian kin. So let's go. To the show. What did you think about me not working when I was in New York? You guys were sending me money. I was worried. You hadn't finished college. And you were trying to make it in a a very difficult field in entertainment, really. Percentages are so small, like, like, that's the odds are so bad. Did you ever want to say, listen, Norm, you've got to get a job. We can't keep supporting you. So I always felt that you would... And would work out somehow. That you would pull it off. Yeah, which, yeah. Which was right. You did. I did. I do think getting a job was, was really good at that moment. It and even good. then, I kind of slipped back. Yeah. You know, like, and then I slipped back, uh, partly because uh, I got laid off, internet laid off. Yeah. And that's when I kind of... That recession slipped me back. Yeah. And then I, you know, did some odd jobs. But then tour guiding is what kind of got me. Even then I wasn't really totally supporting myself, but at least I was working. Yeah. So when I moved to New York City in 1993, I was 22 years old. And I had every intention of getting a job when I got down there. Although it it had been a little while since I had worked. I'd left college early and then I just kind of like bummed around. I wasn't accessing work in any real way. But I knew New York City would be expensive, and so when I would get down there, I would figure it out. That's what would happen. I'd figure out what to do. I'd be floated, okay, for a couple months. My parents, particularly my mom, would make sure that I'd have enough money to survive, but I'd find my way into making money and supporting myself. As to what that might look like, definitely a mystery. 
I did not feel cool enough to do the cool jobs, like be a waiter or a bartender or anything like that. And I think that was probably right. I was not going to get that kind of job. Meanwhile, I felt too cool to do the jobs I might have actually gotten, like working at Tower Records, which my very cool friend Paul actually did, and I couldn't understand why he was doing that to himself. So that was really stupid of me. One thing I did have experience in, if you could really call it experience, was laying out books. Because when I had been between college and New York and living in Somerville, Mass, I had started this small poetry press, and I laid out all the books. Let me tell you, the way I would lay out books is really insane. I was not up to date. Let's put it this way. I was putting on page numbers with tweezers and spray glue. Okay, so at least in the first couple of books, it looked totally crazy. It looked like a ransom note. Books of poetry that looked like a ransom note, but didn't want to look like a ransom note. I mean, I got a little bit better as things got along, but I had no real design background. And I wasn't using all the design products that you were supposed to know to get a job like that. So when I got to New York, I looked at the want ads, you know, back of the village voice, and I see these ones for graphic designer, and I apply, you know, production assistant or something like that. I mean, I very well remember one of these interviews, which was in the Flatiron District for a book company. And I brought my portfolio up of all my little poetry books that I had designed. And they had asked me, you know, do you work with this program and this program? I was like, no, no, no. And they they had to have been very sweet and shocked at the same time. But they were looking at my stuff. And I think they said, you know, your stuff is beyond what, <clears throat> what this job would require. You're obviously very creative. Creative it would be a euphemism for do not have any clue what I was doing. Way out of my league. Didn't get that job. And, you know, quickly kind of got demoralized. Like I said, I had been coming off a stretch of not working. And when you don't work, it's hard to get back into work. You know, but it didn't matter because I didn't come to New York City to be a graphic designer or work at Tower Records. I came to write books. I was going to be a famous novelist. And so I fell back into writing with more urgency. That seemed like the only exit was to become a really successful, famous, rich writer. That was going to get me out of this hole. As game plans go, writing literary fiction to get rich and famous is a really poor game plan. I would have been much better off at Tower Records. But, you know, there was promising signs. Even in that first summer, I had a couple of things that could keep me going. I had this Iranian oil heiress who called me and said that she wanted to get my book Poems for Gangsters published. I got an agent that first summer. That wasn't typical. You know, I was agented by the end of the first summer. So I felt like, all right, well, I'm not working, but, you know, things are happening. Things are happening. But, you know, before you know it, I'm a couple years into New York City. And I've never earned a red cent. I'm still being floated by my parents. And like I said, particularly my mom. My mom's really my advocate back up there and outside of Boston. She's making money and she's sending it down to me so I can survive. It's nothing extravagant. You know, I'm not spending a lot of money. I'm not going out at night. I'm just covering my rent and eating and walking around the city and trying desperately to get published. But I'm being floated, and it's my dirty little secret that I'm being floated. And it's no secret to anybody, but no one's bringing it up either. Money comes in from my parents, and I have this credit card. But every once in a while, I have to call home and remind my mom to send a check, and it just feels awful. So this goes on for years. I don't know if it's three and a half or four years. Just, it's terrible. 
And then one weekend, I think it was like in the fall, I'm up visiting my parents outside of Boston. And my brother, who was living in Boston, he'd come out so that we could all have dinner together. And after that dinner's over, I say, well, I'll take you to the commuter rail station. I'll take you to the train so you can get back into Boston. We get in the car. I take him to the commuter rail station, and I drop him off. And then I just take off because I'm going to go driving through the countryside listening to music or something. Only the commuter rail never comes, like for a reason we never really understood, although it was fateful, that commuter rail never came. I don't remember if I had a cell phone back then, or if it was just off, or my brother didn't know my cell phone number, but my brother ends up calling back home, and he interrupts my dad. And if my dad could probably tolerate another three or four years of sending money down to me, but he did not like to be interrupted. You know, here it is, Sunday night, he's working on something, eating his pretzels, and my brother calls, and that means that my dad has to get his shoes on, get out of the house in the cold, drive over and pick up my brother, and then drive him to the end of the subway line so my brother can get home in Boston. Now, in this magical 15 to 20 minutes between the time that my dad picks up my brother at the commuter rail and takes him into the end of the subway, they have a conversation. And they decide, in their mutual consternation, that what I really needed to do was what I did need to do, which was to get a job. I needed to get a job. So when I come home later, after my magical classic rock drive through the countryside, where I'm probably fantasizing about my Hamptons country house and beautiful wife and and lined bookshelves of novels, I come home to my dad. And my dad, believe me, when he was angry, you knew it. And he gives me an ultimatum. I even think that he woke my mom up. And it's like 10.30 at night on a Sunday night. And they sit me down at the kitchen table. My dad says, you're getting a job. When you go back to New York, you're getting a job. You got a couple weeks to get a job, and you're getting a job. And I said, okay. Okay. It was like being taken into treatment. It was like a heroin addict being taken into treatment. I almost welcomed it. And it would be kind of rough in the beginning. But within a couple weeks, I had a job up on 57th Street, 40-hour-a-week job, and I settled into that. And that's a job that led everywhere else. Without that job, I'd still probably be in a basement in Little Italy, trying to be famous. So when you called home, that meant Dad had to come and get you and drive you right. real life. But, but you guys spoke. Somehow, <laughs> what came out of that conversation was that well, I needed... I remember. Yeah. Yeah. That I needed to get a job. Right. Which was totally accurate. Um, but I'm just wondering, like, how did that come up? Was Dad pretty pissed off at me? I have to just guess, and I would say no, from knowing what he was like... Like, you know, I know where this is going. He then told you that I had said that. No. So Dan had a real tension for... Just to be clear, I don't think he... No, he didn't tell me that you had said that. I inferred that if you guys had that conversation together and that I came home, I actually don't know if that's what you... Right. So I don't really remember. So all I can tell you is what I intuit about him I mean I know he loved us but at the same time I'm not sure that he was that interested in in like figuring out how we ought to do the right thing 
so he, what so, I'm getting at is that yeah. I don't know that he would have said like the and I'm not trying to mean to him, but like, you know, the reason he would have wanted you to get a job would be because you were interfering with the way he wants to live. Yeah, I mean I think you're right about that. Like I actually think that it was less about me getting a job and more about him having to get out of a house at Sunday at nine o'clock. If like that train had come, yeah, I think things would have been different. You know, I'm I'm glad that they that he did that, and, right? And because like I, that's actually what I needed to do, and but that's part of life too. I mean, I agree with you. I don't think he was master planning us at all, and I think mom, you know, she was worried, but she wasn't gonna tell me to make, get a job. I just don't think that was in her vernacular. Well, it's funny, you know, because, like, we've had different experiences. Um, one thing she said was, to me, was that when they told me if I didn't get a job, I wasn't going to college, I took that very seriously, and I had some horrible summer jobs. Because I remember sitting at the kitchen table looking through the want ads when I got out of college, I guess, and it was awful, and I really feel like I had to do that. I really didn't want to do that, and, you know, whatever. So I got pushed very hard to do that, which was, of course, good for me, so obviously, but yeah. So you're you saying know, after was, college, you were, like, looking at the one ads? Oh, yeah, yeah. This was this was to get a real job because I got out of college. I got out of grad school, and the, the market was very bad. Sure. And, you I know, I mean, that. I was a different... I was terrified of everything back then, you know? Like, oh, my God, there's injury. Where, you know, it's, so it's hard to imagine that I was so wound up you know mm -hmm. sure I, I wouldn't be upset if you and dad were like yeah norm has to get a job you don't think that's conceivable that you guys were in oh, the it's car very conceivable no i mean because in a way i felt like i had to because he wasn't taking much responsibility that i sort of had to be that way for you and tracy not not that i was enormously but when it came up you know yeah i mean i was I pissed like, i was pissed no, yeah yeah. But but you know I certainly I'm I'm grateful now because yeah I that's what had to happen.
But you know, that's kind of the way it felt like to be me growing up is, is that I got blamed for not knowing things that other people knew. I was found lacking. Uh, in a, I felt inadequate and so forth. And so consequently, my strategy for survival, I think, now this is, seems like a lot of psychobabble, but, but, but this, and this is in hindsight, my strategy for survival was to look for excuses for why I didn't have to show up for the test. I was like uh, one of these kids, I mean, not literally, but I was like one of these kids who pretended like they were sick a lot. Um, or other excuses, like, for example, like if, if I had some task to do and I ran into some impediment or challenge in the course of putting that task together. Let's say, for example, that I, that I was given for Christmas a little box of a model airplane and I got the glue and I got the, you know, the things and all I had to do was put the thing together, whether it's balsa or plastic or whatever it was. If I ran into an impediment, I, I quickly assumed that a part was missing. Or, in other words, I came up with some kind of an excuse for why I was unable to complete the task. I lived this way. I think there's a beautiful word for this. And if I'm not mistaken, the word is malinger. And a lot of people don't know what malinger means. But it really means um, having some excuse for not showing up for life. But it's some excuse, and that's the kind of thing, that's the kind of, I mean, that was my head, that was my headset. For example, if I, if I was given, um, if I was given the task, if my father went out there and he put a stake in the ground and he said, dig a hole right here because I want to plant a bush, and I started digging and I hit a stone, I would stop. I hit a stone. Me too. I hit a stone. Yeah. I have an excuse yeah. for not finishing this task, for not digging a good hole. I hit a stone.
for work and was wondering if there was work in Hi, how are you? I'm looking for a job. I'm wondering if you have a job for me. for me to work inside. I'm very 